Welcome to the Habits and Hustle podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now here's your host, Jennifer Cohen. I really wanted to meet you of all people in person. Mm. I really, no, seriously, I really enjoyed your book. It was First of all, the book is, I'm starting already. We'll, we'll fix this if we have to. But um, I have Evie. How do you pronounce your last name? Pomperis? Evie Pomperis. Evie, Evie. Okay, I'm glad. Okay, I'm glad that you, you, you corrected me. Um, and your book is called Becoming Bulletproof. And you're the most, you really are one of the most impressive people, never mind women, women that like, you know, that I've had the, the honor to be interviewing. I mean, you're, you've won the Valor Award. You, you're like a special, obviously from Secret Service to you have two degrees, one in journalism, one in, in forensic psychology. You've basically, you're like a real life superhero in a lot of ways. And it's a really, it's a, I really, and the, why I loved your book more than anything is that it was practical. People can actually take stuff from it and learn from it in so many different ways. So I'm so happy that you came on the podcast, even though it wasn't in person. I know. I think we were trying to push it off so we could do it in person because I was supposed to come out to LA and then COVID happened. And then we were, you know, at the beginning, nobody knew, oh, it's a month. Oh, it's two months. Six months later, we're still in COVID. So, but hopefully we get to do it in person. You can put me on your treadmill and we can race. We can see, let's see, let's see how well I do. Because I actually don't do treadmills. Treadmills are like my, uh, my nemesis. I only run outside. So it'd be really interesting to do the treadmill. Haven't run on one in like years. You know, it's really interesting. When I read your book, you said you hate running, right? Which was really funny. So that was one of the things that you try to overcome in your, one of the, one of the things you didn't like. And so I, I found it quite ironic that we do the we do the treadmill interviews, and it'd be that's why I was trying really hard not to. Pr- I was actually trying to prolong this so this virtual por- like portion wouldn't have to happen. I was like you said, I kept on hoping that like mm-hmm. in a month that we'd be able to meet in person and two, and well, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So I like this, I guess this is the best we can do right now. So. Yeah. Where do we even begin? I mean, like usually I have a question that I usually begin with someone that I know that I'm going to ask. But like I said, you have so much stuff that is so fascinating and so interesting for not just me, but for so many people that I don't even know where to begin. I guess the beginning should be like how you were a, uh, you were a girl who grew up in a pretty conservative Greek or the Greek family, right? Yeah. And you, right? And like, you you basically made yourself into like i said like a real life superhero where you were able to you know become who you became and how did that happen like what was your what was that do you think how much of it do you think is some part of you is innate and how much of it do you think is just creation out of sheer will or i think it depends and in different parts of my life it's it fluctuates I think I've always, I never like being told no. I'll tell you that right now. And every time I hear no to this day, like it's temporary for me. So when I hear, hear no, I actually truly, I really hear not yet. <laughs> Good. And I've kind of always lived by that. So it's like, okay, this person may have said no, but that person might say yes, or I'll figure out the way around it. So I've never allowed rejection to stop me. I'm always like, okay, maybe I didn't do this the right way. I'm going to take go at it from this angle but also there is a part 
of me that is innate where I just push and push. But I don't push other people. I, I, I push myself. And in those times where I have been rejected or where I failed at something, I've never, I've really avoided blaming an outside entity for why I couldn't do something. And I think that that's helped me tremendously because when we do that, and I could have done that in, 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 in different ways in different parts of my life, what, what happens is you go down that rabbit hole, you get lost in it. And I, I, your energy shifts from what you should be doing to being a solution finder, like finding the solution to getting stuck into the problem. This happened because of this, that person did this, that person did, did that. And that's going to happen to a point. And I do do that in the beginning of whatever situation I'm in to understand how and why it happened. But I'm always very, very careful. I give everything expiration date where I'm like, okay, well, now I need to quickly shift and figure out how I solve something. But my, my path, you know, it's interesting because sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll hear people read my resume and a lot of it is by accident. And I don't want to say it's truly by accident, but a lot of it is just like a door closes, but a window opens. But I've always been that person that's always like my head's on the swivel constantly. Mm -hmm. So, and I think sometimes what happens is we focus on one thing. I'll give you an example. I remember I was once working government and the first job I ever put in was, this is how long ago this was. I want to say it was the U.S. Department of Probation, I believe. And... I'm right out of school and you have to take a written exam. And I so wanted this job. I didn't even know what they did. I was just like, I want a government job. I, I want to serve and protect. And I show up to take this written exam, which was an essay. And I was so nervous. I so really wanted this job. I go in there and I, I allowed my nerves to get the best of me. And I couldn't finish my essay. It was all like a mess. I couldn't put my thoughts together. The time expired. I handed it in. I'm so short. I didn't get the job. And I remember the person who gave me the, the test, this woman, actually, I had seen her maybe several months later at a, a wedding, just by chance. She just happened to be at this wedding. And I remember she, I came over and said, hi, um, I took your test. I actually failed it. I just wanted to say hello and thank you for the opportunity. And I remember her as I walked away laughing because I really did really bad on this test. She probably didn't <laughs> think I could put two sentences together. And I remember feeling embarrassed because I could hear her as I was walking away. I don't really share the story. It still bothers me to this day. However, I was just like, oh, well. And then I went into, now at the moment, I want to say that this was probably the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. I'm thinking I had this one chance because to get into these government jobs, I can't speak for now, but maybe even right now, it's very hard, very competitive to be an agent, to be a criminal investigator, especially for the federal government. It's not easy to get in. So I really was traumatized. I was like, I had this one opportunity and I let my nerves get the best of me. I completely blew it. And lucky for me, it didn't work out because I would have never applied to the Secret Service and I would have never gotten in and I would have been doing something else that wasn't maybe as passionate about. Well, I mean, I like what you just said. First of all, so you feel like it was kind of like sometimes when things, when you do fail at something, it's usually there's a reason behind it for something other, something bigger and better that really is your path to happen for yourself. It's basically, um, and I, I agree with that. What I find interesting though, is that with your, you got, you were in the NYPD Academy first, right? And you went through that gruesome training. And while that was happening, you got the opportunity to go into the Secret Service Academy. Now, 
what do you think it was about? What was it about you that made them even give you that opportunity? Because you said yourself, these are not easy positions to even, I mean, what is it? A 1% of people that actually apply even get into these, uh, even get the a possibility. Yes. What do you think it was? Besides the fact, I know you said you speak a lot of languages, right? Why else do you think it was? I do think languages help me because a lot of um, Americans don't. And I love right, America. Right. I love I love this country. I'm really. Canadian, so it's okay. <laughs> you know, like, but most Americans don't. We do have, and I was born and raised here, but we have do this, like, I'm America. You know, I don't need to learn any other language. But I always had a knack right. for languages. I love languages. And because the service deals with different countries, that helped. I did, you know, studied overseas a lot. When I was in college, half my studies weren't in a physical college here in the U.S. I did overseas programs. So I didn't learn international affairs from a textbook. I went to the country. I lived a semester in Italy. I lived a semester in Mexico. I lived a semester in Africa, Northern Africa and Europe. So I also had, I also on paper without anybody knowing me, I differentiated myself. I was, I was right. a typical student that stayed and did the four year college. So to be honest, like when my friends were going out to the clubs, just don't get me wrong, I missed. I was trying to work. I was working two or three. I remember one summer I was working three part-time jobs. I was working makeup at the Macy's counter, selling makeup. I was that person. I worked as a summer camp counselor during the day. Then I would go drive to Macy's in the parking lot, change for my summer camp clothes in the car. Thank God for tinted windows. Then do get all <laughs> dolled up, go to the Macy's makeup counter and sell makeup. And then on the weekends, I worked at a gym, Gold's Gym, three jobs, but I yeah. worked because I wanted to study overseas. So I had no time to really party, to go out, to do the things that my, my other friends did. But the world was bigger to me. But I also had, I don't want to say bigger dreams, but I, I had bigger dreams. I had bigger goals. And I think all those things helped me. Plus, the, the Secret Service, the phases that you go through. The hiring process is not an easy process. It's a very selective process and you have to pass rigorous parts of the process. And I just ended up passing one layer, then passing the next and then passing the next. So I think all these things together kind of created that perfect storm to allow me to be looked at, to get in and to eventually get hired. And then talk, like, can we talk a little bit about the actual training process and how what it did to for it basically helped build your mental resilience and all those other things because the whole process right is to is survival of the fittest right that's the they want to yeah. break you down right so that the people who actually are the most mentally tough can actually go out there and get the job so can you kind of talk a little bit about that and the and the experience and the process i mean to be blunt like those types of jobs like you just can't be mentally weak you just can't. No. And, and it's not it's not for everybody. But but I think the first part of it is you have to believe that you can do that. You have to believe you're not mentally weak. You just have to believe that. So you can self-edit yourself. You can you can be, become your own saboteur, so to speak, and sabotage yourself in the mm -hmm. process by thinking you don't belong there and you shouldn't be there. And I, I never had that in my head. Even if maybe somebody else right. thought that or felt that, I was just like, your problem, not mine. And right. But the thing is, you have to perform. But it can be like, look, when you're there, it's stressful. And it's stressful for everybody. Like, you're at the range. 
And when I'm not being scored, I would love shooting. Like I love the marksmanship of it and the, the technique. There's a skill. But then when you're being graded and, and assessed and you're using all these different weapons, I never shot a gun before going into these academies. I didn't know anything about weapons at all. And I had to learn the skill, but I was op- my mind was open. I also learned not to take it personally. And I knew I had to perform. But for me, like I was... I knew I was so lucky to be there. And because maybe that first experience of blowing that first opportunity that I had to go into the federal government, I was like, I'm not blowing this. And I really threw mm-hmm. myself into it. So if people yelled at me, they didn't just yell at me, they yelled at everybody in the class. When we got in trouble, everybody did push ups. Everybody had to run. Everybody ran till they threw up. Everybody had to go through tactics. You just have to perform. And so. It's like, yeah. how bad do you want it? I wanted it badly. Right. And like, yeah, how much of it is physical? Like, what, how do, what is the, how do they break you down though? Like how much of it is physical? A lot and of how it, much of it is, a lot right? of it is physical. A lot of it is physical. They really like the physical element is something that's, look, there's a lot of academic, you have to pass both parts, but a lot of it is physical of all the agencies out there. It is probably one of the most physical jobs because they're dual missions, so they do protection, which is the part that mm-hmm. is the most physical. You have to physically maneuver people, carry people, fight people. You're there to jump in front of a bullet. There's that, that, is that whole aspect of it, and you have to be absolutely 100%. It has to be not just okay, but totally normal for you, which it was for me. Um, right. And then there's a mental part of it, the studying, the learning the laws, the ethics, the, the behavioral sciences, that, that, that part where you have to study. To me, I think... The part that is the hardest for people is the physical part. Yeah. That, I think that's the hardest part because they really make you run for miles, running in the heat, in the snow. You're, you're, you're being pushed. You're doing hundreds of sit-ups and hundreds of jumping jacks. And you're doing all these things that they're, they're like you think you, your body's like, there were moments where we'd run. I'm like, I can't even do another five steps. You know, it's just like, I can't do this. Because they wouldn't tell you. One of the things they would do that was a complete mind game is, they wouldn't tell you, like, if we started to run, they wouldn't tell you how long it would be. It wouldn't be, yeah. hey, we're doing 15 minutes, we're doing a mile. So it's a complete mind game. So you could be running for three miles or you could be running for 10 miles and you had no idea. And that was very painful, not knowing when it would end. So right. I would just look at the floor. I remember there's moments where I thought, like, my lungs were going to just, like, literally rip open. And I was just like, five more steps. Five more steps. And then I do the five steps. Five more steps. Don't think. Just run. Just I just look at my feet and I really would bring myself to that moment of like, don't quit. And the fear of quitting and losing this opportunity was greater for me than the actual run. And I was just like, you know what? If I pass out, I pass out. The lift, the, I mean, I, 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 right. I, I'd rather be like I passed out or they have to pull me out or I hurt myself that my body gave out on me rather than that my mind gave out on me. Usually it's the mind. The mind navigates everything. It right. really does. So I just didn't let myself have an out. And I also had some really good classmates who were like, hey, man, keep going. So, And also, like if you see the, the big guy next to you struggling, you're like, I can do this. I'm going to do this. Like <laughs> If I can keep up with this guy. And then sometimes, honestly, I would look for the weakest link. And there were moments where I was just like, if that bozo can do it, I'm sticking this out. And yes, exactly. And that gave me energy. 
it also, once you see, I feel that when, once you see yourself actually succeeding at something, that gives you a, that gives you a motivation to keep going to the next thing. It gives you the confidence. I feel once you, I think when you have small wins or big wins in this situation, that win propels you to the next win. And, and it kind of keeps on going from there. You know what I think? No, I think it's small wins. And I think this is why so many people give up on things so easily because we think something's going to be a big win, like, like hitting the lotto or do putting mm. in for a certain job or losing weight. Whatever that thing is you think is going to happen quickly, it doesn't. Even training, when I went in, I pull-ups, for example. I'd never done pull-ups before. I struggled with pull-ups. And I remember even there were a couple of girls in my class. There weren't a lot of us in the just a couple and the other girls were like, well, you don't, nobody really expects us to do them. You know, women are, can't do pull-ups. And I was just like, mm -hmm. no way I'm doing them. And I was like, I'm not going to just do them. I'm going to do what the guys do. I was like, I, I, right. I, I went and I found the standard for the guys. Cause I was like, I don't want to hear nothing from nobody. And who says <laughs> that I can't do them? Like, look, upper right. body strengths were designed differently. Absolutely. But you know what? These guys had a lot more to pull up than I did because I had a smaller frame and I was skinnier. So I was just like, even playing field. But I worked on right. them. And I think the small wins, so it goes from doing one pull up to two pull ups, from two to three, from three to 10, from 10 to 15, from 15 to 20, however it is, and even the run. So your wins are small, they don't happen right away. But it's patience. So we, we all want that quick, big payout. And then when we don't get it, get it, we, we give up. But eventually with time, over not the first week, not the second week, not the third week, but my body started getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I'm like, man, I'm pretty diesel. I'm like, I can lift like whatever at this point. And then you get, right. your, then you get into your flow. But it takes time and, and it's incremental. And I think that's where people lose hope. We're so like instantaneous. This got to happen fast, and it doesn't happen fast. We lose hope, we lose motivation. It's just like you gotta stick it out. I, yeah, you know, when I said big, I meant big wins. I mean, I said small wins because I do believe that. But for you, these are all, in my opinion, when you're in a, in a situation like that, that's like a monumental win, right? Like to do some of the training. It sounds very similar to like the Navy SEAL training. Was it? It seems like that's the kind of physical. Uh, situations that you guys are in the similar to like a navy seal correct well, do you know how it's different i used to work a lot with the seals actually we would work in tandem with them um and I, we always talk about training their training was a, a different because it was tactical in the sense that they go to war and yeah. our training and they also deal with the water which i'm a terrible swimmer so i definitely would have never made any of those they're guys. all tailored for their specific mission but yes the physical element is on that level like you're you're yeah. you're performing to this prestigious physical level for your specific agency and they have no problem telling you that you're weak they have no problem telling you that you suck they have no problem telling you please go home the secret service did really try to work with you but at that point by the time you get to the academy, like you're really handpicked and they do a physical assessment on you to see if you can even get into the academy. So you've already been filtered through to see if you even have the physical capability to go through it. Even when I was already in the Secret Service and I was going to the president's detail, I had to try out for that. So everybody, there's this myth. If you're in the Secret Service, oh. you out. Oh, a small percentage yeah. of agents do the president's detail, a teeny tiny portion. 
do it. I was going to ask you about that because I, I think that is an assumption because you see all the movies, right? And every, the movies look like if you're a Secret Service agent, yeah, then you, that's part, the job is to protect the president, the, the first lady. So how of all of the Secret Service, what is the percentage of people that actually get to do that part? You know, that's such a hard question. Maybe 10%. I don't know. That's a really, it's it's not a high number because a lot of agents go to former protectees. So former President Bush, former oh, this, yes. former that, the former First Lady. So they all get protection. And then some people don't want to do protection. There's other avenues. There's intelligence. There's protection, uh, like a different part of it, like the operation stuff. So they have other divisions that you could go into, or some people just stay in the criminal investigative field. So not everybody wants to go to the show, you call it the show, because it's a hard life. And then you also have to dish audition for it, in a sense. And the other thing, too, from a uh, when you audition or when you put in or when you try out and you fail, everybody knows you fail. And so just the sheer part of trying out and not making it and failing is enough to deter people from putting in for it. So it's a, it's a, it's a highly selective process once you're in there. So even there, I had to try out internally at my office before they yeah. sent me to the president's detail to try out again, to go through an internal selection process. And then maybe you get the president's detail. Like it, it's not an easy thing to get. Wow. So how did you, what was the audition? What, what, how did they audition you? The audition, right? I'm talking about Yeah. It's a, I don't know, but like, no, but well, like, it's like, that is like, to physical. me, like, that's like the, the pinnacle of it all. It's physical. A huge part of it's physical. Running, tactical training, push-ups, pull-ups, clearing houses. Like a lot of it is combat fighting. Like, can you tactically fight? So like, if you're in a burning building, can you effectively protect your person? Shoot, you know, be engulfed by fires or flames, be shot at. Protect yourself, protect your person, jump in front of a bullet. If you're getting ambushed, how do you tactically go? Like there's also like if there's an attack, we don't just randomly run different places. They everybody's assigned different positions, different positions do different things. And that's all classified. I can't share that. But you have to memorize every move, every position and where you would go during that position, depending on a, a, a tactical firefight. Then you're, you're working with snipers and you're working with the tactical team there's a lot of tactics a lot of movement you really have to be i'll say this you have to have agency at this point when you're putting in for something like this you must have agency over your body at this point your motor agency skills your over your movement your physical capability like you have to have agency and you know and sometimes what do you mean agency control what do you mean discipline oh, control. Over your body. Okay. at this this point you have to be performing like you have to be strong, you have to be performing, and your movements should flow. Think of it like a martial art. At this point, you're an expert. You know the moves, you know how to use your body, you know how to deal with your opponent. So you're already in this flow. And then mentally, you have to be able to function in high stress. So the world's falling apart. There's explosions. Everyone's trying to kill the president. They're trying to kill you. But you have to kind of get quiet and think, there's my guy, there's my other guy. Where's the threat? Okay, I'm moving. My world's quiet. I'm flowing. Chaos is happening around me, but inside there's stillness. And there's also this level of, of peace. And there's also this level of, so I might die. You gotta have that. If you go to that job thinking, oh, I'm gonna die, you're done, get out. Because you have to be okay with it. You have to look at it. It's like, well, I might die. It's part of the job, it's normal. And 
you also around other like-minded people who are kind of like, all right, today might be the day. And, and you're good with that. I can't even believe this. I mean, how, how can, so, I, so that's something you have to be born with a certain kind of mindset already that to be okay if you get shot at, like you can't, that, how does that just like, how do you just create that? Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I think I'm tough-ish, but there's no way that I feel, and I know you're going to disagree with me because I heard you on some other interview say this, but like, I still don't think I have the, 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 the ball, so to speak, to be able to put myself in that kind of front line. And, you know, I think you have to have, you have to have that innate desire to some degree to push through that type of barrier. I mean, it's one thing to like push through something else that you're not going to get killed for, but this, and I know you said, well, we can all be that way, but, but it's, I, don't it, know. I think it's what you said though. You hit on it. It's like, you didn't have the desire. I had the desire. Yeah. So we have the desire and the passion, then then it works out. So it's it's like anything. If you have the desire to do something, you'll pull you'll put all of you in it. So first yeah. you have to have that desire. And I did have the desire to serve, to protect. Like I did have that innate protective feeling. Like I, I was right. happy to do that. I was also you also become what you're surrounded with. So if we hung out, if we took you mm. and all you did is, you know, I brought around all my secret service friends and you just hung out with us for a month straight, you would start slowly to kind of we would impermeate right. you a little bit and you would start to kind of share that that mental mindset because we, we share, we kind of, we influence one another. So you would absorb those qualities because that's what you would be around. If you're not around that, then it's very foreign to you. And that's true. So, that's true. you know, so you're in service of something greater for, than yourself. And then I think sometimes in our culture, we're so fearful of death. We're so fearful of it. It's like, but it is, but the thing is like, it escapes no one. It escapes nobody. We're all going to go. And I think because we are such a fear-based thing behind it, when you normalize it, like that it's just part of the way it is and it's, it's like a, an evolution of us, so to speak, like we just evolve, it's just part of us, then it, it becomes a normal thing. But if we, we hype it up into this scary thing, this, this thing that's completely going to demolish us, then I think we, you can either choose to be more afraid or less afraid of it. And you can pick like that path. I agree. But I actually think what you said was spot on because you become the people that you surround yourself with become who you are. Right. So that's why they say the five people closest to you are the most important. Right. Because you guys, you basically feed off of that energy and that kind of that, that person, those, those personalities. But can we go back to this because I think it's so fascinating. So here you are, you're like protecting the presence. Who was I know, you're, you probably won't tell me, but who is your favorite? Who is your favorite person, like as a person that you protected of all the presidents? <laughs> I won't tell you, um, okay. just because I want to. I think what you know what happens is when we give up our favorites, it's like sometimes because we are the privilege we have, or I had, you know, being in 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 close proximity to people, people read into it. See, yeah, that guy was nice. The other guy was a jerk, and I really I'm super careful because. The, the connections still are there. You know, they're not strangers to you. They're, they're human beings. They're all unique. Like they're all special in some way. They're all different. I mean, I learned something from each one of them. I enjoy, I may have joined certain assignments more than I enjoyed others, uh, but sometimes that had nothing to do with the person I was protecting. It just had to do with where I was or what my positioning, my assignment was. Okay. All right. So let me rephrase it a little bit. Like what, what would you say? I'm going to change it a little bit. So, okay. 
of all the people that you protected from uh, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, everybody, all these people, it doesn't even have to be those people. Who would you say you learned the most from just watching how they are? Everybody. It's so hard to say it's no. Is there one per- is there one person though that you feel like you just not what of one what of who are one of your favorites? How about that? Can make it more general. One of your favorite people. I can say like experiences that I can enjoy. Like I enjoyed like sometimes I am like not outdoors. I grew up in Queens, I grew up in New York, I don't know outdoors, I don't speak outdoors. <laughs> Well, I would enjoy going to the, I love the ranch in Waco, Texas, and I was terrified of it at the same time. I was just like, oh, the ranch, so this rattlesnakes and mountain so lions. George Bush. And George, so George Bush Sr. Well, what yeah. I loved was seeing him do mountain biking or um, hack into the, he would create paths. They call it, his name was Trailblazer. His name is still is. It's Trailblazer, his code name. And so he would literally hack trails. So I like that part of him, which was, it was uniquely different. So here's the thing. This is why oh, that question is difficult. I had access to be around the multiple presidents of the United States. There's not a lot of them. And there's like not many people who can say they were around so many of them, even administrations. When right. a new president comes in, the whole administration goes. Very few people can say that they're around these people. So for me, it, it was shocking, actually, when I saw that. That's what was really surprising. That says a lot about who you are and, and your job, right? Because that's what I was reading your bio initially. I'm like, how is this possible that she could be the president to, uh, I'm sure she could be the protector of Obama, Bill Clinton, George Bush. I mean, George Bush. Who else was it? Like there was, who else was there? There was just, I mean, well, well, I started under Clinton's administration while he was still under, current, current. But like, for example, George H.W. Bush, which is President Bush's right. dad. I had him, I protected him while he was a former president. So he was already out of office. So that's where people get confused. So you can, I probably protected all of them. Four, two I protected. I just, Reagan I never had. And I heard he was great. I wanted to protect Reagan. It just never happened. But you, never happened for you. you have them through different points of their lives. So really, truly, Life. I had... George Bush Jr. and Obama while they were current. And then Clinton, technically, I didn't get to actually protect him until he was as soon as he got out of office, like literally the next day, I think I had him. So he technically was a former at that point. So that's kind of how it works. So you're you're around them, but they're still engaging with people. They're still doing things. They're still involved in nonprofits, different organizations. They're still out there. So you, you learn so much, so much from them. I mean, even Mrs. Former First Lady, Laura Bush, hands down one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever come across. Really? So you just, you just see these wonderful qualities. Like you don't get to that place without seeing, I just, I guess why I can't pick. I, I can't pick. It's not like, you know, pick your favorite shirt. It's like pick your favorite couture gown from, you know, it's like they're all amazing. Like you can't pick one. But also, it's hard to interview someone like you, right? Because you're the master. You know exactly. This is what you do. You're like a master interrogator. You were like you were in a polygraph. But that's what you did, right? That's how you were. Also, you were like an interrogator. You read these polygraphs. That's what you did for a living. It's very hard to kind of like 
get you and go try to get you to say something that I don't that you don't want to say because you know all the tricks already. So you know you're gonna just bear with me. I'm gonna try my best. That's okay. You know? But but that, <laughs> I think that that's okay. I think that and that's the thing with like you feel good about asking the things that you want to ask, and then I also have to feel good. I think sometimes we feel like we have to. We can still be polite and say no to someone. I can't answer that without it being a negative thing. And I think that's another thing I learned in mm -hmm. as being an agent and going through training and dealing with difficult situations that like you can have wonderful boundaries and be graceful and respectful and still say, no, I can't cross that boundary and make it oh, absolutely. absolutely friendly and warm and just be like, it's just not a boundary I can cross. Oh, absolutely. I like, like I said, when I read through your book, I have to say there are so many things that resonated, like how you embrace combativeness, not combative, confrontation, I should say. You embrace those things because that's how you get past certain things and you have, you're honest and you're authentic of what you need. Also, there, there's, like I said, there's so much here. I don't even know where to like zig or zag. So I guess to, let's just end. I want to just end this part because we, we, we I kind of like took you off a little bit talking about the presidents and like your favorite. And now I know Laura Bush is most likely your favorite that you ever uh, dealt with, but I'm just teasing you. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Um, about what are some steps for people right now? Because with to, to kind of gain some mental resilience, because right now everyone's really, I think a lot of people are struggling with what's happening right now with COVID. And how do we just kind of, let's tie that bow together. A few steps of how people can, really begin to build mental resilience yeah so stop thinking about what's happening as a problem covid the whole environment it's all negative 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 right and so mm -hmm. just it's like it's just make it your new normal so remember when i told you i went through training everyone's yelling at me screaming at me trying to break me rather than seeing it as a negative i was like no this is just my new normal human beings mm -hmm. we are so resilient we can be so resilient just adapt to this get mm -hmm. that narrative of like this is bad this is bad this is bad because then it's all bad it's like okay this is my new norm it's going to be here for a while we might finish 2020 and go into 2021 like this it's very likely so yeah put it to the side stop consuming the negative news and the negative me media twitter i used to use a lot now because every time i get on twitter it's hate it's negative it's this i'll post if i need to post something i get right off so you are what you consume. Yeah. The information yeah. that's out there is what you consume. The news, go in, get brief, get out. You, that, that thing should not be on 24 hours a day. News is always going to be negative. It just mm -hmm. is. People, that's what they're going to show you. They're not going to show you all the positive things. They're going to show you all the negative things because that's what draws people to connect. Also, think about your inner circle. You touched on it before. Who's in your, your, in your inner circle? Is your inner circle afraid? Are they... I don't want to say weak, but are they weak? Are mm -hmm. they making you more stressed out? Are they making you more panicked? Like, what are you doing to cope with that stuff? So think about things that make you stronger, more resilient. Think about your body. Are you taking care of your body, yourself? And I don't mean just working out to be fit. I mean, working out to be healthy and to take care of you and be good for you. This is your new normal. So if you lost your job and everybody to some extent has either lost her job, had to pivot, figure out new ways, lost income, like everybody's experienced something. So here's an opportunity for you to pivot. So don't think mm -hmm. of like, get rid of that woe is me, look what COVID is doing to me. It's doing it to everybody. How do we move on? Change that mindset right. from like, hey, how do I crush it? I don't, mm -hmm. 
I think it's about dwelling on a problem. And what we do is we dwell for long periods of time and we let stuff touch us too much. Does that make sense? We let mm -hmm. things impermeate us. Mm -hmm. And we don't create healthy boundaries for us or healthy life habits for us. And then we wonder why we're depressed. We wonder why we're upset. We wonder why we feel victimized. We wonder why. Because we allow it in. Right. You're the gatekeeper. Put your gate out. Right. So, to be, so you're basically saying that to have change your reframe how you think about certain things, change the the dialogue in your head, basically, and try to create some positive positive habits that become your new normal. That kind of becomes who what you're doing. So, so new it's routines, right? So our old new routines routine. are gone. And so what happens is we get stuck. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. It's not there. We're not there. It's gone. Let that go. Stop living in the past, create new routines right. to adjust to now. So it's that problem-based versus solution-based mindset. So we sit and focus on the past, the problem, the problem, the problem. It's like problems here. It's not going anywhere. Move forward. Solution. How do we move forward? But also filtering what you let touch you, what you allow to access you. Adapting. Adaptability, acceptance, and adaptability are the two biggest things in your life. Accepting mm -hmm. the reality of the truth of where you are and being okay with it. Here's my truth. Just is what it is. Now, how do I adapt? But when we resist adapting, where it's, I can't believe my husband left me. I can't believe I lost my job. I can't believe I have no money. I can't believe this. You're just stuck. You're never going to move forward. You're never going to be able right. to pivot and shift. Right. Adaptability. They say that's the most important thing for survival and for like success, right? To be able to pivot and move through. Um, well, thank you. I think that was, that's, that's, Obviously, it's super helpful. I mean, like I said, this is all in your book, also, and like even certain things, like you are giving in, in uh, becoming bulletproof. What I loved about also, like when I'm reading a part of it, then you even talk about things like it's just the in the protective area, like how you could protect yourself when you walk into a restaurant, even knowing where exits. Like you really do give such great tactile, practical information from so many different areas. That's why, like. I feel I have to definitely, by the way, have you on many times because like, I'm just going to be going from one area to another right now, just to kind of like touch the surface. Cause like I said, this really, I, I really enjoyed your book. I really, really appreciate did. that. And I really appreciate like what you said, especially in the beginning, because when I was writing the book, I wanted to give people actionable things because I'm yeah. that person who's read a book or listened to someone speak and they give you things in theory and you're like, mm -hmm. that's great. How do I do that? Right. Exactly. Tell me the how. And that was one thing I was like, I don't want anyone to read this book and feel like you didn't tell me how to do this. You didn't Absolutely true. And that was the most important thing. And and to, to and I wanted to take everything because the, if you want to create like a resilient mindset, a bulletproof mindset, a bulletproof life, it's about confidence, about protecting yourself. It's about living fearlessly, about putting all these things together. And that's why I broke the book up into the three parts, protection, reading people, influencing uh, situations. Because I was like, it's, it, all of this together makes you unstoppable to some degree. Oh, absolutely. Like you're, you said, I, I totally agree with you. There's so many books that I read because of what I even do, right? Where I'm like, there, it's, it's, so, it's all theory. There's nothing in it that gives someone an actionable thing that any down the street can actually truly do to kind of better their life and that they can integrate. You said a lot in your book, in the protective area, I believe it was, you talk about like the, the F3, you know, to 
the flight, uh, fight, flight, and freeze mode, right? And this could help with like helping with um, your fears in general. Like I think it was like you said, how to conquer fear. And I really this resonated with me because you you were saying how there are people who like naturally their tendency is to either fight uh, or flight or freeze, right? And knowing what your tendency is and how then to work on it to protect yourself or overcome fear is so helpful. And I when I was reading that, I'm like, this is so true because. I tend to freeze. You tend to fight, right? Um, I and then everybody else. I'm just like a <laughs> you do. You're just like the toughest human in world. You're like the toughest person. I've like. I don't know if it's tough or stupid because you can go either way. Okay, well, for this interview, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna be polite and call you very. T- you're tough, okay? But like when you were saying when you were a young girl and you were like your house was being broken into, your mom froze and you went. You went. You went looking to fight the the potential burglar and. I, I re- I thought, oh wow, I'd be what have, I would do what her mom did. I would just actually just you know freeze. Um, can we talk a little bit about that and how this is a really good way to kind of frame how you push past your fears and help even protect yourself by working on knowing knowing yourself? Because you mentioned being rea- realistic with who you are helps you in life, really. Yeah, because I you know it's so important to me because it's like there's an ancient Greek saying, "Know thyself." So how can, mm-hmm. how can you learn to overcome fear when you don't know thyself? You don't know yourself. What do you do? So you have to know you. There's so much power in ourselves. And so many of these books and, and things I read, it's all about the external things around us. It's like, no, mm-hmm. it's always you. It's you're the, the, the everything in your life. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I'll be honest, like I'm sick of everybody being told that there's things that are being done to them that diminish them it's like no you're the gatekeeper you control what you let in what you let you know affect you you decide what you tolerate right and i really wanted to give people that that power back and part of that power is like know who you are do you yeah. are you someone who fights everything because that's so if you we use myself for example i like to fight i, I immediately go on the defensive or offensive rather not the best thing to do because sometimes if I do that, I can sabotage a relationship unnecessarily. I may presume something as somebody taking a shot at me when they're really not taking a shot at me because right. I'm immediately prone to do that. So because I know I'm, I have that temperament or that reaction to whenever I feel threatened, I know to slow it down because I know it's coming. I'm like, hey, I know it's going to come because I know myself and then I can control it. If you know, hey, I always freeze and freezing means you're in that inner struggle. I don't know what to whether to fight or I don't know whether to run. I'm not sure what to do because you're overstimulated because your F3 is being activated. Your adrenaline, all that stuff is happening. It's a lot for you. And so sometimes what we do is we just lock up because we're so overwhelmed and we're afraid of it. It's like when you know that what's that's what's happening, you're freezing up because your body's trying to help you. And so when you see it in a positive way for what it's doing for you, it's like, hey, my body's trying to help me. And when you understand why you're freezing up, now you can overcome it. So in the situ- in another situation and when different st- stressful situations happen and they each have their own you know, level of stress, how severe or not severe they are, you recognize it and you say, okay, I'm freezing up. I know what this is. And you almost kind of feel your way and talk your way through it. Okay, well, I know I'm freezing up, but I'm going to put that on pause right now. I think in this situation, I should deal with this individual. Or maybe in this situation, I should just walk away. 
And that can help you set up that plan because you know what you expect. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know what you're going to do. So if you know, if you know what you're going to do, if you let's put it this way, if you don't know how you're going to react, how are you going to handle somebody else? You got to know mm-hmm. you first. And when I remember when I first started to learn how to fight, even now I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Muay Thai, and I'll get hit. And I remember I was fighting yesterday. I'm supposed to go this evening, and I was fighting with my instructor. And he had me on the floor at one point and he like, just like completely like demolished me and we're play fighting, right? This is, I don't want to say play fighting. The jujitsu world's going to get mad at me. We're not play fighting or fighting, but he's really trying to make it hard for me and choke, put me in this, this chokehold. Wow. And I started panicking and it's not a real right. chokehold. I start panicking and I'm like fighting like an animal and I'm losing my technique. And actually when you fight emotionally, you get sloppier, you make more mistakes, you get hurt. And so in that moment, it's like, hey, don't go into your fight mode, into that crazy emotional mode. You know what's happening. Breathe. It's tactics. It's training. Slow down. Take a moment. Okay. Now figure out your maneuver. So even to this moment, I have to walk myself through that. Yeah. And also what you said is true. Like whenever you do anything, when you're, when you're coming from a place of emotion, that's when things kind of go, go awry, right? Like when you're mad or you're angry or not able and, and you and you respond out of emotion in lots of different ways um it's it's how but how what's a good way to kind of exp- tell people what in your opinion how do what's a good way to kind of stop that from happening so anger it's very easy it had to stop responding or letting emotion run what you do, what your next move is. It could be in business. It could be in personal. Like that's how a lot of fights get escalated personally and professionally, right? Because you say things that you don't mean, that you don't want to say, you do things that you don't want to do, but you don't have that, like that button in your, in your body to be like taking a breath and like moving on and like, or or stepping away, stepping away. That's a really good question. And this is something I learned over years. Because we all do that. We step in it. We say it. We can't take it back. We commit to something we shouldn't have done. When you can, and I will tell you this, 90% of the time, do nothing. We think we have to respond to something. Do nothing. When you can, just do nothing. So when I go silent, for example, it means I'm pissed. Because (laughs) I know myself well enough because I know I'm going to say something. And it's happened to me in the past. And once you say it, you you can't take it back. So when I'm seeing right. red, I shut up. Even if I have somebody doing or saying something, if I can within that moment not do anything, like in business or in relationships, most of the time, you can do nothing. You can sit and let somebody yell at you. Let's make it horrible. Let's say somebody's yelling at you and berating you. And maybe let's say it's a boss. And you can in that moment say nothing, do nothing, and walk away. And then think about what's happening and think in a thoughtful way, how do I deal with this? Or how do I deal with this person? Because yelling and berating that person back or escalating, maybe they're making a snide comment at you and then you just jump down their throat. That you're, you're also helping escalate the situation. So you don't want to mirror the nonsense or the garbage other people do. You want to have, you know, I said you want to have agency over yourself. You want to have agency over yourself. You just don't want to be this reactionary person. You just don't want to be somebody who just reacts to the random things that people do to you. That means you have no agency over yourself. That means you don't govern yourself. You're just mm-hmm. constantly in response, reactive. In those situations, when you can, as much as it hurts you and as hard as it is, 
do nothing, walk away and think about what's happening. Let that emotion pass. There's so much power in that because the majority of the time you'll find, I don't need to respond to that angry text. I don't really need to respond to that email or I can just sift through all the noise and just be like, yeah, see you tomorrow at eight and ignore all the knots and somebody just, your colleague or coworker just wrote you. And then you start to figure people out because and in life, even now, like I'm constantly assessing who and what role people play. And over time, people may end up being people that you should avoid. You're like, you know, this coworker repeatedly, I've had this issue with them. I don't like the way they talk to me. I don't like the way they speak to me. Now you may think I'm gonna go tell them off and you can, or is it better to like minimize your interactions with that person? Cause usually it's very rare where you're gonna go off on someone and gonna be like, you know what, you're right. I am an asshole. Right. They're not. They're gonna be like, how dare you call me that? How dare you this? And you end up having this. I guess be smarter. They're playing checkers, you play chess. Right. Don't think the next move. They're thinking, most people think immediate gratification. I want to tell you off. And I'll play that out. I'm like, I'll tell you off, but then how is this going to hurt me later? Well, you could screw me on this deal. Well, you could have me do X, Y, and Z differently, or you could hold back money from this project, or you could hurt me like this later. So I'll think five or six steps ahead of what it means long term. But again, when you're emotional, lock the party down. Just the best thing you can do is just shut up, pull back. I don't want to say retreat. This is not retreating. This is about being tactical. Pull back, and you can. I don't want to say get back at people, but you can put people back in their place over time. Like you don't have right. to do it in that moment. More from our guest, but first, a few words from our sponsor. So do you want your team to develop habits that will help them thrive? You need Rise.com, the all-in-one online training system employees love. Rise makes online training easy to create, enjoyable to take, and simple to manage. With Rise, anyone can easily create guides, courses, and other training content. You can start from scratch or customize hundreds of pre-built lessons, helpful course templates, and gorgeous sample courses to build content even faster. Your learners will love Rise because Rise courses are beautiful, interactive, and engaging. Your managers will love Rise because Rise makes it fast and easy to create, distribute, and analyze online training. And your IT department will love Rise because it has everything your team needs to manage online training in one secure enterprise class system. See why you'll love Rise by starting a free 30-day trial at rise.com slash hustle. That's rise.com slash hustle. And now to our next sponsor. So have you guys tried UCAN for your energy? Because if not, I would definitely give it a shot. UCAN has this patented ingredient called super starch, which has this ability to provide a steady release of energy without spiking your blood sugar levels. This helps you focus through the day. It gives you longer lasting training while you're working out, and it keeps your hunger in check without, of course, compromising your health. Today, I had their energy and protein cookies and cream powder, which was not just delicious, but it really did maintain my energy throughout the day. 
It was originally created for a child with a rare metabolic disorder, but you can super starch is now the go-to energy for over 400 colleges and pro teams. Olympians are using it and thought leaders in health and fitness are also fans. You can learn more about you can at you can.co that's u c a n.co and save 20% on your order with code hustle. I think you said something in the book about being a disruptor or something like that. You called it a yeah. disruptor. And what is a disruptor again? It's, uh, so it's a term, when, yeah. So it's a term I came up with to help for those difficult situations. Three disruptors, okay. time, place, um, time, place, and activity. So time is a disruptor. So you get an angry email from a, a boss, give yourself 24 hours before you have to respond. Or just don't respond when you're pissed. When you're pissed, do nothing. Right. Um, when you're afraid, do nothing. All of it. When your three's on high, do nothing. Um, so time gives you that ability to self-reflect and look back and think about situations where maybe you've told somebody off or done something. You're like, you know what? I didn't have to do that. I could have just let it go. I could have ignored it. I wasted my time with that person. So think of all those times where that's happened, where you think right. of how differently you could have handled it. Um, that's time. Place, move, remove yourself physically from the environment. Go downstairs, get a cup of coffee, go walk to the deli, leave your house, go to the beach. Just you physically take you and move. Get away from that person or that situation when you can. An activity is something bigger. So let's say you're really dealing with a huge life situation, maybe a, a really horrible divorce. And you're stuck and you're angry and you're trying to figure out how to manage it. Sometimes literally removing yourself from the event or some, whatever trauma you're experiencing and putting yourself somewhere wholly different. Maybe taking a vacation, maybe traveling overseas, maybe completely like removing yourself. Not right now. Well, not right now, yeah. <laughs> but maybe learning a new skill set. Like when I go to jujitsu, it forces me to be in the present. So no matter what's in my mind, it completely shifts me because I have to be in the, pre, uh, the present. Race car drivers, people who climb, you know, rock climbers, all those activities that draw you to be in that present, in that present moment, skydiving. Just you want oh. to, I'm giving you extreme, sailing. I know. It's, the activity alters your mental makeup rather than you sitting home and dwelling on a specific situation. Get out, shift, shift the activity in your brain. And the way you can come back at it from a different lens. Uh, yeah, I mean, though, I, I really love. I, again, I love that part. I love that you you put a name to what it is, right? The disrupting and how disruptor, and all the different ways and how you should be able to do it. Because I I found that with myself, right? And I, I'm sure everyone can relate to that. That they've reacted out of emotion and they paid the price in some other way later on, right? So, I, yeah, I thought that was that was really well said. Um, but you like, did. You, you, I feel like we let other people get the best of us too when we do that, and then we resent right. ourselves. And that's what this is about. It's not about putting other people in place. It's about power for ourselves. And honestly, a disruptor could be something simple. Of and I've I've done it with my husband sometimes. I'm like, let's get out of the house. Let's go for a walk. I need ice cream. I'm pissed. Yeah. Whatever your disruptor is, just move, shift, change, change your environment, which helps you change what's happening here it's, and here. And, and by the way, there's a lot of research that proves that when you change your environment, something happens in your in your neurons in your brain 
that tweaks your how you feel about a certain situation. Um, but you did you, you were saying something until we were kind of going more into the disruptor part, part uh, but which kind of like segues really good into the part about when you're when to get to know people to kind of know when someone how someone what kind of person someone is. You know, this is what you did for a living. You became at what point, by the way, were you an even an interrogator? I feel like you, you've done like a zillion jobs in the 12 years that you were you were in Secret Service. You've kind of like I feel like did the gamut. You did the the president. You were like the you watched over the presidents. You did the 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 lie detectors. You did the interrogations. You did like a million jobs. Which part? Which one was your favorite? First of all, I'm curious. Can you tell me the favorite part of your job that that so that's you personal yeah. objective. That's yeah. true. That I can share. I think it was when I worked cases, when I did interviews. Those were the most meaningful to me. And you're right, like most, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think it's like only, it's about 30 special agents out of like the 5,000 agents that, uh, um, personnel that are in the Secret Service are polygraph examiners and interrogators. Um, so it's a very small skill set. And I just, it, there's an opening and I was just like, why not? Has always been my mindset. Like, why not? Worst they could do is say no. And right. I, I always, I've always kind of been like, let somebody else tell me no. I'm, I don't ever want the first no to come for me. Like that's always been like super important because I feel like I've always had. Even my parents love them. Everything's like no, 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 no. And I'm just like, I can't. I it knows like my least favorite word out there. Absolutely. I love that, that you said you, you you don't want the first no to come from yourself. You sound like you were raised very, I'm Jewish, and we seem like we've, I feel like we came from a similar background where like, but your parents were like kind of very conser conservative, overprotective, and they wanted you to have a certain lifestyle, right? They wanted you to get married, have a baby, you know, marry a nice Greek guy for me, a nice Jewish guy. And you kind of like, you just had your own path. It's just amazing. And it kind of, what normally would happen is you kind of just follow, people usually follow that path, but it kind of, you went the completely the other direction and you rebel basically. And when like, now I never want to say, no. you never want to have a limit. You never want to have anyone say no to you. It's just, I mean, I, I, I love it. But um, what were you, were you for, what did you do first? Were you a polygraph? Were you no, a, did so you first you do, you come out, you're criminal investigating, you go into investigator squads. And then it was after maybe okay. four or five years they, that it was opened up and they said, would you like to be in a polygraph examiner interrogator? And I said, sure. And you had to kind of try out for that as well. Uh, <laughs> take, more, take more polygraphs to pass because you get a higher uh, clearance level when you do polygraphs because you're, you're interviewing. Oh, okay. You're also interviewing not just criminal cases or violent crimes. You're interviewing things that have to do with national security, terrorism, intelligence stuff. So there's this whole other audition process like same yeah. thing with the <laughs> detail that you have to go through then a whole other training academy that you have to go through that was that was pretty much all academic and that was extremely hard academic wise but going back to your initial question what was the most meaningful i think that was that because for me i was really dealing directly with people and so if i'm helping with a case where let's say we have someone that we think committed a crime and they're about to walk and I could come in and talk to that person and possibly get information or confession or new leads. That was very impactful to me because we were trying to get justice for someone. But then by proxy, if we, if a police department or somebody was looking at the wrong person, I could come in with a fresh lens and say, you're, this person's innocent. You're looking at the wrong person, focus elsewhere. And that would also happen too. 
So I felt like in this way, like you're really impacting people's lives directly. I know most people would probably think that I would say being in the White House and being with the president, but I, for me, working cases and helping society directly, that was the most impactful. When you really see a family member or you're really doing good that's changing somebody else's life. Because also, you know, and we're seeing today, like if you're not really thoughtful in the way you behave in this type of environment, because you're given a lot of power over other people, a lot of influence over other people's lives. And I really, I took that to heart. I never took it for granted how a wrong decision on my part could really change somebody else's life. To mm -hmm. me, it was every day. Arresting somebody was like no big deal. Or interviewing someone or interrogating somebody was no big deal. But for them, it's a big deal. And so I never lost that. So those were the most impactful things. I mean, did, did you feel that you had to be kind of like a chameleon when you were interviewing, when you were interrogating people, because you had to adapt yourself, your personality to mold or to 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 meet the, the person that you were talking to, to get the information that you needed out of them? Like I, you had to. Yeah, I didn't feel like that. I think I realized that I think most people would think, oh, you have to pretend to be something you're not. And that's. That's disingenuous and then people will see through that it actually taught me through doing interviews that there's more layers to myself i'm not one thing and i think we grow up and we think we're just one thing and you hear that term people say i'm just going to go be myself and i was like what is yourself myself mm -hmm. changes throughout the day from the morning i'll be one person by the end of the day you've got a whole other woman and so <laughs> i started embracing those layers of myself and then and it also helped me understand myself better was who, who I was as an individual, what parts of me needed work, what parts of me to embrace. And then depending on the person I had, I would draw out certain parts of me that I think would resonate with them. And then I would suppress other parts of me that I thought would diminish them or intimidate them or frighten them. So I would just, it was like, it's like a radio station when you're trying to find that, that, that radio station, the frequency, and sometimes it's like they're static, sometimes... It's really strong. Sometimes you're mm -hmm. looking for that perfect song. And that's, it's like on the radio, but I'm all those channels. Right. I'm all those yeah, channels. Exactly. But I'm just trying to figure out which one I need to be, which is the strongest and resonates the most with that specific person. I think that's true. I think we, we, we all are, though, chameleons in a certain way for ourselves. Like we all have different layers and different ways. That it, it doesn't mean it's disingenuous. It doesn't even mean it's, it's, doesn't mean it's not authentic. It just means that we all have different sides to our personality. And it's about basically what side do you present to what situation? Because I think, I, again, I think you're also saying this in your book that um, your first impression is very important, right? And appearance, and for, people don't want to say this, but it's the truth. Appearance is important. People are making their first impression based on their fir the first thing they see. So why not put your why not be able to people like what they people like people that they feel they have something in common with or they feel like right so i think that's all true people feel like they're not being real if they're not exactly i'm just going to wear my sweatpants because that's just who i am really but if you're going to a corporate environment maybe that's not basically the best thing to do right i agree with that or like it's like oh stephen jo um what's his name mark zuckerberg wears a hoodie i'm gonna wear a hoodie i'm like that's mark right. Zuckerberg. like it works for him you exactly and if you're trying to work and to get to that point where you you want to achieve something the impressions you give off to other people like they have relevance 
And mm-hmm. so the outside does matter. When I say the outside matters, it means the part of you that you're choosing to present. What are you choosing to show to the world? And is it conveying the message that you want? You control that narrative. You right. control all of it. Uh, like right. If I did an interrogation and I wore a bright pink fuchsia sweater with yellow flowers on it, you tell me how successful you think I'd be. Yeah. <laughs> no, Absolutely. Which actually brings me my but to my question for you is in all your experience doing this, um, what do you think were the most um, what 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 work the what steps or what kind of things did you do to get what the, the the information that you needed? What was the how did you how did you maneuver besides of course you know adapting your personality uh, to somebody? What other ways do you feel that you can kind of influence people the best way you know no i think i'll use it from the perspective of today because you know so it's more relatable to your listeners and viewers i think when i'm dealing with anyone especially in business today or even personal relationships um i try to listen and speak less especially at the onset of any conversation and I think that that's the most important thing rather than right away coming in and giving advice or, or helping, thinking I'm helping, but it comes up more like I'm lecturing someone. I think most people just want to be heard. And so silence in the beginning of the onset of most conversations has been, I think, a, a great power, great leverage, because it allows me to adjust to the person in the mood that they are currently in, our mood shift, right? So mm-hmm. that's it also allows me to assess. So. For example, if I want to say something to have an agent and I want to share something with my agent that's super important with me, but if I call and in that moment, my agent is super busy and he's got, he's like, Hey, look, I don't have much time. What's up. If I have something really important to say, I might not share it in that moment. I'm like, this guy's busy. He's not going to hear anything. I say, this is a big deal to me. It's like, Hey, no, no, don't worry. Why don't we talk later? How about tomorrow? The day after I will postpone having that conversation because if I'm going to drop something that's super important to me, I'm going to drop it when you're fully present. So just something as simple as that is assessing your environment and the person. Sometimes if I have something important to share with someone, I will save it to a later point because I'll understand this person is not in the mindset to hear or receive what I'm going to say. And because what I'm about to say is super important to me, I'm not going to waste it in this moment because it's going to have no impact, no effect on me. They're not going to receive it. And then I can't deliver it again. Absolutely. I agree with that. But that's about no, having the ability to read people and, re, and, and read a room, right? Um, but it's listening some, too, right? So if my agent's right. like, hey, sorry, super busy. What's up? As soon as I hear that, you just told me you're super busy. You don't have time for me. You're not really going to listen. Within 10 seconds, I already know not the best time to tell you what I want to share. People will tell you. But what most people would do is be like, oh, I have to say this. I, I'm thinking about me and what I want to deliver, and I'm not hearing what he's telling me. I'm busy. I don't have time. What's up? He just told me everything I need to know about him in that moment. No, 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 no further reading in or diving into. He's not here. He's not present. He's not listening. Shut up and save it for next time. Absolutely. There's a difference between listening and hearing though, right? You can hear something, but not be listening to the actual content that's coming out, right? Because you're right. My husband all the time. (laughs) Right. And and so do I, by the way, you know, I think I, I, I do too. But I think there's so much value in that, right? I think that's how you, I feel you get 
you really you get to know somebody and that's how people also get trust that they trust you when people feel that they can t- when they talk people love to hear themselves talk i feel right so if they talk they feel oh they're closer to you that's probably another way you can kind of glean some information that you need right yeah. i think we just just people want to be heard they want to be understood so let them go and people love to talk about themselves they love to talk about themselves let them go let right. them let them give you info and uh, use silence when you're talking to people if you're having a conversation with someone and sometimes it can be difficult maybe your teenage kid and they're not giving you a lot when you have conversations use silence Sometimes I'll see parents fill the void of the silence with by continuing to add information in. Drop the question and leave it. When you drop a question and you leave it, you put the onus on that person that you expect them to answer. But what we do is we don't, we've got this weird thing with silence. We don't embrace it. Silence is powerful. Drop your question and let it rest. Count to 10. We used to have this, I did one this colleague, he would count to 10 before he would actually say anything to somebody he might even wait longer see i agree yeah oh you're right it's like so uncomfortable people hate that discomfort of what silence is right and then when you that's counting to 10 is like a mind fuck really you know what i mean you're like so it's become so awkward but maybe that person also needs time to be comfortable to speak to you maybe you're also allowing that person to put their thoughts into place. Maybe that person also by being silent, you're telling that person, this is important to me. I really want to hear what you have to say. And you're also not yeah. giving that person an easy out to move on. That's that's a hundred percent true. But even in an environment that you're in, when you're in like an interrogation room and people's fear, I would imagine would overcome them. Right. And their behavior would very much be different than what it would normally be outside of that room. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, um, you know, how do you tell what's the, what are some ways that you can tell? I know I, you, t- you talk about a lot about this, how you can tell when someone's manipulating you or lying to you when you don't know somebody, you know, you, you said something really amazing. And one of these things I, I, I saw on you, how if people deviate away from their natural behavior, that's a sign that they're lying to you, right? What happens if you don't have a close relationship with somebody and you want to know if you're getting the right information or if they're lying to you? How, what are some tricks and tips for people? So for something like that, so let's say like you and I are talking, right? So you've got your, you've had a, the similar posture throughout the interview. When you ask a question, you get excited. I, you use your hand a certain way. Now she's going to get all uncomfortable. <laughs> right? yeah. but, you know, we, we don't, we've never met. We don't really know each other. But in talking with you, when I'm, you're asking me these questions, you're comfortable because you're asking me, right? So I'm, watching, I'm assessing, I'm looking at your normal pattern of behavior. Even within like the first two minutes of a conversation, people show you the normal pattern, meaning their posture, how they're seated, the way they speak. And so now if we were to turn the tables, having like I've already assessed your normal pattern of behavior, how you position, the language you use, whether you, you know, hand movements, hand gestures. And so if I would flip it around and ask you a question, and let's say it was an uncomfortable question, I would look for deviations. If you maintain the same posture, the same language, the same paralinguistics in your response to me, it would indicate to me she's being truthful. This is the pattern she showed me the whole time during our conversation. This is who she is in this moment. That's why it's so powerful when I said, let other people talk first, not just because they wanna be understood, it allows you to assess them. 
mm-hmm. when I let you speak mm-hmm. first. And even though mo- the majority of the interview here, I'm speaking because you're you're the interviewer. You're asking me. But at the same time, I'm looking at you. I'm also listening to you. I'm looking at how you nod up and down when you like a question. I'm looking how excited you get and the way you shift and you lean in when you talk to me. All these little things, which I'm really sorry. It's just habit at this point. There are little oh, things absolutely. happening in my head. And I'm like, that's who she is. And so if I ask you something uncomfortable and you deviate, oh, that's not who she's been the past five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. So maybe there's something going on here with this question that I asked her. So that's why it's so important to try to be, to try to listen information from others so that you can get a read on their, their patterns. Besides patterns of their body, that's more, that's body language. It's also, it sounds to me. It's verbal language too. It's verbal if Verbal. I'm asking you questions and immediately you go quick, respond quickly to every question. And then I ask you, you know, like, for example, you asked me, but you give me an out too. You asked me, what was your favorite president? And when I pause and I, I don't answer right away, and you kind of automatically knew this because you read my book and you, you've done research on me, but you also knew that I wasn't going to give you a response right away. And I didn't. You saw me, I get quiet. I'm like, you know. I deviated from answering the question. I went, I danced around it. So now it was known to you already, but am I answering your question? I never really answered your question. So you want to look at that stuff, but so many times we'll ask people questions and we'll think they answered us and they never do. Politicians are great. I always use them as the great example. Yes. I've, I've learned probably my, my greatest evasive techniques, not from the interrogation room, but from watching all the politicians and presidents. Oh yeah, absolutely. They they never answer the question, and it's a but that's a, but that's a talent, right? To know how to deviate and to skirt around. You know, years years ago, I used to work in media training, right? And we would teach. I would teach people. We would teach people all the time that have three landing places that you want where you want the answer to be. You know, you've got three different answers or three different things you want the people, the public to know, right? So no matter what the question is, know where you'll have three places to land. I feel like these people, that's, that's how people get, ar- get around it. They'll always be able to, it's a talent and it's a, also it's um, experience, right? To know how to, no matter where someone's asking you where to land, what you want them to know, right? But it's practice. Anything that what we're talking about is practice. You can practice anything, right? You can practice getting better at, you know, dancing around a question, right? You're, you're very good at it because you've done it for God, how many years of your life? I mean, for, forever, right? It becomes second nature to you. So would you say to really then understand, kind of know if someone's lying is the language they use, obviously the body language, and then how they're saying what they're saying, right? So it's, yeah, it? it's really important, you know, and I'm glad you're hitting this, because there's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of people who talk and they tell you, oh, these are the top ways to know if somehow somebody's lying. And I want to be very clear, and this is important because like, there is no textbook if that somebody does this, this, and this, they're liars. The, nobody, we're so uniquely different. We're so right. uniquely different and we're all going to behave differently based on our DNA, our genetics, our experiences, our backgrounds, our culture, all these different things. So to say, for example, that anytime somebody lies, they look up and to the right. That's just the most ridiculous thing. I've, just think about how ridiculous just that sounds. Or every time somebody's going to lie, they're going <clears> to <throat> clear their throat. Some people may do that. Some people may shift their gaze. Some people may look up to the left. Some people may look at the floor. Some people may do absolutely nothing. 
that's why it's so important to really evaluate a person as an individual and know that there's different indicators and different things people can do. But this easy checklist like, hey, let me tell you how to spot liars. This is where we miss it and why people are still baffled by it because we think there's step one, step two, step three, and we lose we lose this, this common sense knowledge that nobody is going to behave the same way. The same way we talked about F3 before. Some people fight, some people free, some people flee. Everyone's uniquely different. And so we want that quick, easy answer rather than really sitting down, paying attention to that person, connecting with that person and noticing that person and paying attention to who they are, how they speak, how they present themselves, their voice. You can always see one thing I noticed like for, for when it came to like women who had been victimized by uh, spouses through some type of abuse, whenever their spouse was around or they were speaking of their spouse, their voice would go softer and higher. Mm. They would they would shift. Or even when yeah. they talk normally about one thing and then the minute they're talking about an abusive relationship or an abusive parent, an abusive parent, that adult would go back into that child voice. And they get really high and they don't sound like they were talking like they were a little kid. And then they go into that that demeanor and that 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 persona. And then that moment I'm like, wow, there's something traumatic here. So even just listening to somebody speak about their parent, just listening to the paralinguistics and the way they would shift from who they were to how they they sound when they talk about their parent would tell me a lot about the relationship they have with that parent. Yeah. I mean, I see that. I, that's that's a that's such a great point because I do you see, I see I see that too. When someone talks about the their parents or their relationship, from they they tend to shift their voice from what it was at that moment to when they're thinking back to their relationship. Now, in with all this interrogation, do you? I mean, all the experience you've had. Is it just a matter of time until you break someone down? Like usually, like you can. Will you get the information or? Does everyone finally come clean or get or whatever? Do you get what you need? Just and yeah. is it more like just like no time? Not everybody, not everybody breaks. Somebody told me when I went through the interrogation school at Department of Defense, they said ten percent of people will tell you anything. Ten percent of people will tell you absolutely nothing. It's the eighty percent that you have to work for. Mm. And so the danger of and if we're talking just purely interviewing interrogation techniques. The danger of breaking somebody down is we've seen historically that some people give false confessions. And that's highly, highly dangerous. At least if we're talking about criminal investigator wise, like I never wanted that. I needed always and I wanted to always to make sure that what somebody was sharing with me was true. Because could I be that good and are some people that good to maybe manipulate somebody to tell them something that didn't happen? Sure. Age is a factor. Mental health issues are a factor the weakness or vulnerability of the person is a factor. Sometimes when people are talking to police, they really give this reverence to them, this trusting thing. And police, law enforcement are allowed, I was allowed by law to use, to lie in the interview room to some extent to get somebody to tell me the truth. I could say like, for example, oh, here are the, I have the fingerprints right here and I would have absolutely nothing right there. So those tactics were allowed by the Supreme Court, they're allowed. So I never wanted to break someone down like that because I could make a huge mistake and implicate somebody or get somebody to tell me something they truly didn't do. But if we're taking it again to real life, you don't want to break people down. You don't want to browbeat people into doing something. I've seen this and it will blow up in your face. Even if you get somebody to do something short term, 
Once that passes, they're going to resent you. You have to allow people to get and make their decisions on their own. You can't bully people and you don't want to bulldoze people. Nobody respects that. Nobody likes that. Nobody appreciates it, even if you are right. Think about all those times people have bullied you or bulldozed you, even if they were correct to some degree. The delivery mechanism is super powerful. We don't want to intimidate people. We don't want to make people fear-based. All that stuff hurts you. You want to allow people, if you can, to comply or get to where you want them to go willingly. So can you bulldoze someone into giving you a deal or agreeing to something? Sure. But then after the fact, they will resent you for it. And think about all those times where somebody did that to you and you're like, you know what? That mother, I will never do that again. That person got me to do this. I didn't want to do it. And you resent them and you resent yourself in the process. We don't want to yeah. do that. That's actually very true. I, and also, it's like when you have to lead by like telling someone, people want to come feel like they are coming to that conclusion on their own without someone else, basically, like you said, not just browbeating them, but making them feel that they have to because they're your boss or they're your your authority. It's a very, it's a, it's a very um, sensitive way to kind of navigate through those types of communication to get people to do what you want without them feeling that they're doing it because you told them to, right? So that leads me to my next question with you. What's, what are some great, some, te some te like techniques to get people to do what you want them to do without them feeling that they're doing it because you, they feel obligated because you, you may, you're making them do it? Well, it depends. So I actually don't, I didn't, there were so many things I wanted to put in the book and I just didn't have time. But like when I do, I do public speaking stuff where I talk to companies and I teach them how to deal with difficult employees difficult customers and all that stuff. But for example, I'll have a lot of employers or supervisors say, I have a hard time managing my employees or my people. How do I deal with it? And so just a very simple mechanism is when you're looking, for example, to discipline someone, let's say they've done something or you really want to exude power. The last thing you ever want to say to somebody, I'm the boss, you need to listen to me as your supervisor, like get rid of all that language. They already know you're that. It diminishes you. You don't need that. But what are the little things you can do? When you have them come into your office, if it's something where you want to exude, I'm the boss, you're the employee, when they sit down, have them sit down across from you on the other side of your desk. So you want to put a barrier. You want to create a me, and then there's you. So right there, I'm setting up my environment to create the separation. My chair as the boss is going to sit slightly higher than your chair. So that way, when you're looking, you're going to look slightly up at me. Very subtle. I mean, you actually don't want to put the person on the floor, right? But these <laughs> yeah. are, because they're going to realize it. But these are subtle techniques in which you can create an environment where that person feels that you are the supervisor. Have a seat. Show people where to sit. Would you like a drink of water? Control the room. Control the environment. Close the door if you need to. Or maybe it's a day. It might be a little bit more difficult to close the door in a certain situation. Um, right. Be able to address someone. And then when you address somebody, eye contact is huge. Eye contact is huge. Never be afraid to make eye contact, especially when you are trying to convey something with someone. And something that's super important, because sometimes when we deal with confrontation, there's, there's plenty of em em employers and bosses that don't like confrontation. They don't like to, to reprimand anybody. Make a list. Because when you're in that emotional moment, that F3, when you feel threatened, you're uncomfortable, oh my gosh, this could get confrontational. I always tell people, make a list and write out your points. And so let's say you're dealing with an employee who is not performing a certain way. I would give them facts and I would write them out. That way, 
in that moment when you're having this emotional thing happen with, within you, you're not trying to think through. You're just reading off a piece of paper. Look, I want to talk to you about this account. There's something that was missed here. Could you tell me why that was missed? Tell me about that. And I talk about Ted in the book. Tell me, explain, describe. When you don't know what to say, have them tell you. Have them open up and start to give you information when you're not sure how to speak. So all these little things that I'm talking about create an environment of power and strength. The other thing, and again, I'm really getting into the weave like of the psychology of no, it. No, I love it. No, as, I love it. As a supervisor, you might not want to have, if you want people, neutrality is very powerful. The more people feel like they know you, the more comfortable they are, and the more likely they are to challenge you. So if you're a supervisor and you want to really maintain that, that strength, don't go out drinking with your buddies. They're not your buddies, they're your employees. Don't cross certain lines because you want to have them not completely, fully comfortable with you because once they feel that it gets harder for you to deal with people and they're more comfortable with you so they'll push back they'll cross over and then maybe all the pictures in your office maybe don't have all pictures of your your little kitty cat muffin or your family or think about what you're exuding to other people because when they see pictures of your family members and you know everyone's gonna get mad at me like well oh, i can't have pictures of my family members you can have them but what's happening is they feel more comfortable because they feel like they get to know you. Right. right. Like, oh, she's got kids. Oh, she's got this. Oh, she's got a cat. Mm, might not be that tough. I don't know. Whatever that perception yeah. is. Right, right, right. The more of a mystery you are to people or more of an unknown you are to people, they don't have time or they don't have the ammo information to kind of dissect you and analyze you. The more of an unknown you are, the more neutral you appear to them the more of a, a wild card you want for them. They can't, they can't assess you as well, where you can assess that person better. So all these little indicators are super, super powerful. They can give you strength. Even what you post on social media. Well, that's why, that, that's, the, that's the detriment, right? I mean, people, that's how, I've had a lot of guests on the show when we talk about how to kind of, um, how to read someone quick, or we're talking about this with you, how to read someone quickly or how to, build trust and all these things that we're kind of also talking, talking about people say, look around the room, look at what they have, what pictures they have, make a, make a, a natural connection based on what you see when you walk in the room. If they have a dog and you have a dog say, Hey, you know, my, I also have a golden retriever. We, you know what I mean? Like to kind of find the like, connecting points. So you guys could, you know, it, it takes away that, like that fear or that level of authority right away I don't want and you you're to saying feel too comfortable because the more you feel right. like you know me the more bravado you're going to have in the room in the room you're going to the more comfortable right. you're, you're going to feel to talk back to say something and if I'm trying to keep I'm, I'm trying to manage all my people I want to keep right. that I want to keep that unknown I don't want you to know me that well and this is it can this can be hard for certain people you can still be friendly you can be cordial you can be inviting to people but you don't need to be an open book for people. The more you share, the more comfortable people feel. And this is where I see a lot of managers, supervisors, employers having a really hard time navigating relationships with employees. Just know when you're hanging out and doing these things, it just makes it that much harder for you to manage people. Yeah, that's a great point. Because like I, like I just said, the reverse also works. That's how people get, feel that, that those are tactics when you look around how they can get to know you and feel that they can make that connecting point to to level the playing field, right? So, I mean, 
It's amazing. You like you have to write another book. You have a lot. Like, there's so much information. There's like I mean, even in that book, I mean, there's like that would could have been three books right there. Each each section could have been one book. I really believe that. You know, like yeah, there's so much. Well, the, you know what? It's I, I think it's the only book of its kind because you'll find a book out there that's about protection. Then you'll find a book out that's out right. there about mental resilience. You'll find a book about body language or reading people. Then you'll find a mm-hmm. book about influence, but there's no book that takes it all and puts it together and kind of harmonizes it and integrates it. And that's because that's why I was like, you have to be, I think it's important to be all of these and use all these because I use them in the day to day. I teach them to, to individuals. They were taught to me through the U S secret service. Some of the bravest people and most confident people and successful people use so many of these strategies and they incorporate them into their lives. And I really was like, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book to, to make people feel powerful. I don't want to sit and write a book about my life. Like, that's not what the well, point of the book was. But I will say those stories, those like personal stories and, you know, anecdotes are very, very like, that's compelling to me. You should, I, I was actually, that was the, one of the greatest things, like hearing these things or me being able to like be curious and ask you who your favorite president was. What was the... What was like something that you learned from like i hear that bill clinton is the most charming charismatic man that's ever walked the planet right i'm curious in real life when you work with him day to day what was he as charismatic as everybody says he is he was very charismatic he was very in 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 the present moment when he talked to people and that's what was very powerful and then he he mm. manages this he does something that's so simple and if you, if you pay attention after we have this conversation whoever's listening i want you to pay attention that watch people and when they talk to you how fully present are they and when i say fully mm. present like if that iphone comes out or if that iphone is even in their hand they are not fully present and so right. he really when he talked to you he talked to you so there could be like a thousand people around him but he really was kind of there with you and that's like such a simple thing that anybody can master but most people take for granted Right. Of all the people, and this maybe maybe you will answer. Was he uh, visually the most charismatic of all the presidents that you've worked with? I think he was likable, most likable. It's not likable. I think a lot of people liked him and were drawn to him because of his communication skills. He made Mm -hmm. people he made people feel special. He really made people feel special. And so think about there when people make you feel special. It makes this okay. The more you feel good, the more you trust and like a person. So we also behave towards someone and open up and trust people based on how they make us feel. So if they make mm-hmm. us feel good, we're more likely to trust and be open. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he did. People felt good when they were around him, but it was because he was fully present and made them made people feel special. If you make people feel special. Like it's such an exhilarating thing. I mean, it changes the brain chemistry. It really like it, our, 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 our endorphins go up, our dopamine goes up. It's a feel good thing. Something even as simple as saying somebody's name. When you call somebody mm-hmm. by name, we our brain responds. It gets activated. It gets excited. We feel good. And so that's what he really is successful at doing, really talking to people. And he it wasn't like a superficial, like, hey, hey, how you doing? Like he really went in and he was like, he was locked yeah. in with you. He, and that was like that was kind of like his superpower in a way that that's really was. I think what so. was 
I think so. Too. I mean, I think that was like a universal thing. I mean, that's why people thought he was so charismatic is what exactly you just hit it. He made people feel special when he spoke to you. He made you feel like you're the only person in the room. Right. So that's a, that's a that's a superpower. What would you say? Would you say Obama? What would you what would be his superpower? His voice. He really like projected his voice. Mm-hmm. I was really yeah. impressed by that. Like you could hear him coming. He really used his voice. He was a really good speaker. He would slow down. He would speak. He took his time. Like he would, when he talked, because of the way he spoke, he's telling you, I'm important. You need to listen to me. And so he exuded power through his paralinguistics and his voice and speech. He didn't speak right. fast. He didn't rush through it. You don't hear a lot of ums, likes, filler words. Did really did that stuff. He really owned his voice. He projected his voice. So using your voice projects power too. When we're talking about supervisors before and how to deal with people, think about how you're using this this tool. Tool. Yeah. We don't really embrace it. We kind of take it for granted and use it. You voice exercises, voice and speech. There's so many things that a lot of these presidents or influential people do behind the scenes. Something simple as taking voice and speech classes to enhance the way they speak to the public. It makes a huge right. impact. Makes a huge impact. I agree. And what do you, like, what, what do you, is your show, is the Bravo show, it's coming back for another season or it's Spy Games? Spy right? Games. Spy so, Games aired Spy Games. this, this, uh, this winter pre-COVID. And, Pre-COVID, uh, right? And it's, uh, it's on Hulu now, so it's streaming on Hulu. Oh, it is. Are they coming back with another season then? Or? We don't know yet. COVID's, you know, throwing everything for a loop, you know, across yeah. the board, including in TV. There's filming. Can you film budgets? There's so many things happening right now. So, but like oh, anything, it's yes. like you accept and you adapt and whatever the next new project is. What is your daily life like? Can you give me a day in the life of, of Evie now with your, like, what do you do? You wake up, what time? Give me your day to day routine my day-to-day routine so usually oh, I your work, daily routine my daily, daily routine. routine usually i wake up around between six and seven i mean okay. it can fluctuate but it's usually between six and seven i wake up right away and i always change right away i change even now from working at home i change i'll even wear shoes in the house when i'm working like i really kind of shift into work mode but the first thing i do is i wake up i um i get myself out of the house right away so I go to Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. Those are my vices. I don't have any other. <laughs> I'll go get a green tea or some kind of beverage. I do a drive. I go outside immediately. That's your vice? Yeah. Green tea is your vice? Green tea oh my God, girl. Dunkin'. It's, it's like all oh my. I go out the house, but it's sweetened. I can put a lot of sugar in that. That's like where I have oh. a issue. But I go out. You're crazy. <laughs> You're crazy. I go out. I come home and I immediately go into work mode. So I'm, I'll stay in my shoes. I'll go sit in my office because now we're all COVID. So I can't go into a studio. Um, but I did adapt. Like I created a studio at home. So I did certain things to kind of embrace the situation now. And sometimes I'll have to travel. It's rare now. Sometimes I'll have to go out, but usually I end up doing my work from home, um, from my home office, depending on what I have. And then around I'll work straight through. I might take like a, and I literally, I'll give myself a 20 minute, 30 minute lunch break while I'll completely check out. I'll, I'll step away from my stuff and then I'll eat, whether I'll watch something entertaining, but I let my, my mind rest. That's just me. I have to give myself a break. Then I go back into it. And around six or seven, like today, it's around 7 p.m. I have jujitsu. So 
once I, I set that clock up, I'm, I'm like, I'm done. I go into my night routine and my night routines where I do most of my stuff outside of work. So night routine is some kind of workout. So today's going to be jujitsu. Um, tomorrow might be running the day after I might be working out in my garage, but every day I do something physical. It's how I get all that stuff out of me. That's just me. Remember fights my, uh, Mm -hmm, I know. So I'll either like chase my demons, run my dragons out, whatever you want to call it. So today I'll go to jujitsu from actually no Muay Thai is today, which is Thai boxing from seven to eight. I'll do that. I come home. I go to my inversion table in the garage. I hang upside down between five to 10 minutes because it stretches my back and my spine, which is is really good for elongating muscles. I'll stretch. I do a cold shower. Stretching is huge for the body. And I'll do a cold shower, no more than five minutes, man. I like, you know, I put my timer on, but it's really good invigorating for the body and it stimulates circulation. It's got youth properties that, you know, (laughs) preserve. I know all about the cold showers. I hate them, but I know they're very good and what it does. So even doing it. Oh yeah, I'll yell and scream in the shower, whatever I need to do. I'll talk to myself. Then when I'm done, I'll do a meditation. That's my evening routine. Like I will do that. Like I really try to stick to that. It's super, super powerful. And then I'll make sure I try, really try hard after 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. Like I try to make it seven not to eat anything because when I eat late, I sleep with a heavy stomach and it's, I also do intermittent fasting. So I'll definitely, yeah, I do it. I, I definitely give myself a minimum of 12 hours where I won't eat. This is not starving ourselves or anything like that. Like I want to be clear. Like, so if my last meal is at 7 p.m., I'll make sure not to eat anything till 7 a.m. It allows your body to just rest and be and clear itself out. The body is not meant to always have like food and stuff in it. So this is my routine for me. This is super powerful because I, I believe in taking care of, like, this is my temple. I get one. I don't get another one. And I want it to be as strong, as powerful, as beautiful as I can keep it. It's what, this is what I got. This is what God gave me. Whoever gave me, this is all I have. But it's on me. And I've seen we'll take better care of our cars and our houses and our manicure our lawns than we will this. And this mm-hmm. is so important. And every week, I will make sure to do something that's good for my body, whether it's acupuncture or um, whether it's going to the chiropractor. Uh, whatever it is, every week I'll do something that's outside of my normal routine to care for my body, whether it's getting a manicure or pedicure. Every week I do one thing. And I really like this is, you have to love this and take care of this. And when you do that, you'll love it more. And, mm-hmm. and, and it increases your confidence, your self-esteem, all of that. It's just all in connected. Mind body, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, all, it's all like this. Oh, absolutely. You're preaching to the converted, by the way. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and it's interesting, your, your night routine is, you know, a lot of people do those things in their morning routine, the exercise, the cold shower, the meditation. Why do you do that at night, not the morning? Because I listen to myself because I tried the morning. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. I wake up. I'm on fuego. I'm like, I got to this. I got to that. I got to that. My brain's going rapid fire. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm so glad you said this, because I feel like we, we look at everybody else and we try to mimic what other yeah. people do. And this is goes back to what we start off with. Know thyself. I know myself. I've paid attention to myself. Morning routine does not work for me. Night routine does. And you know what? I sleep better because of it. 
Yeah. Because I prepare my body for rest. I rest better. I sleep better and I wake up on fire. So I have too much energy, too much going on for me to go work out. My nighttime routine is really me doing self-care. For me, for the morning, what's going to happen is I'm going to go work out and I've tried it. And the whole time I'm not focused on my workout. I'm thinking, I got to answer this email. I got to send this. I got to do that. And so I'm not present for that. So I feel like when, for me personally, when I work, then I'm done. Now I can be present in my nighttime routine. I did all the things that were chattering in my head. Yeah. Just works for me. And so for somebody else, it may be middle of the day. So that's why I can't emphasize this enough. Don't try to be what everybody else is. Find your your flow, your, your groove. You'll know what it is. If you're trying to do the morning routine and you suck at it, like I do, there's a reason why you suck at it. It's not for you. Switch it. Right. Try at night. Try at middle of the day. Figure out what works for you. And you have enough energy at night to do Muay Thai and all these other types of boxing and, and martial arts. You have enough, like, from the day, you have enough energy going into the night to do that. I make myself go. There's days that I don't have energy. Like, there's days, like, I'll, I'll even put on Instagram because I really want to be honest with people. I feel sometimes we'll have trainers and instructors. And I'll tell you this, even going through Secret Service training, like, when they would... Like we'd run and work out. There were very few guys that'd be like, yeah, we'd all be like, this sucks. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is the truth. I don't, I, I, I call bullshit on those people, by the way. Yes, you should. And I think, and again, it's one of those myths where we make people feel like, oh, you should enjoy working out. You should be motivated. And you know what happens? People think I have to be motivated to work out. I'm not mentally there. So hence, I'm not in the space to do this. Let me tell you, I'm going to go to Muay Thai today. I have like mm, 50% motivation to go, but I'm going to drag my ass and I'm going to go. Afterward, I feel good. The whole way there and halfway into it, I'm just like, I'm looking at the clock. Exactly. Half the time. But it's when I'm done that I'm like, I, I know I did the right thing. So please, like, if, when you don't have that motivation or passion to go, hello, like, that's just normal and it's okay. Just go. Despite you being like, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, just physically put your shoes on, physically put your sneakers on, physically go do whatever you're going to do. Don't think about it. Do. If you yeah. think about it, you're going to think of the 20 different reasons why you shouldn't go. Absolutely true. I, I, I think that's a very good point. People think that because I work out, you know, it's very important to me and I work out every day that I must love it so much. I, I disdain it 99% of the time. In fact, I hate running too, but you know why? I hate running so much. I make, I force myself to go on that treadmill every day oh and God, run I because I hate it. Right? That's because I hate it. I, I will not let that be my thing that, and I, I hate it the whole time I'm cursing and I'm trying to think of everything else to do to get off that treadmill. But I keep on going because it's the after effects. It's the residual stuff you get from it afterwards that's so important. And people don't seem to understand that you don't have to love it to still to still need to do it to be good for you and get the the benefits. So I'm so glad that you're that you're the same way. That's that, good to know. I, such, I think it's the truth. I know so many people who work out, and it's very few people like, yeah, I love it. I think most people are like, yeah. it's, it's hard. It's like exactly. You, know it, you don't, and you said something great. You don't do it because you love to work out. You do it because you love yourself and your body. That's why. You do. Yeah. I love, it's, I, I'm showing love to myself. That's why I go. Absolutely. The benefits that you get from so many, from just mind, body, mental, everything. It just, it, it kind of, it's one of those things where 
you do that to get the good stuff later. You know, you got to go through the, the, the garbage to get to the, to the treasure sometimes. I'll tell you, you know? I learned this, honestly, I learned this in the Secret Service. They really taught us to, to nurture our bodies because our bodies are our vehicles. First of all, if your body wasn't performing, you couldn't do the job, you, you'd get fired. But you had to perform. Every three months, we yeah. get a physical fitness test. And oh. so they're, they're in, they were like, you got to perform. It's just part of the job. But it became part of that culture that the, your physical well-being was, was, part, was part of your job. You had to work out. And yeah. so I took that into my day-to-day life now. It's like, make that part of your physical well-being. And I have to say, you know, some of the other agencies might hate me for this. Of all the, the federal agencies, you, you, you watch the president, any president. It doesn't matter what president is. You look at the Secret Service detail around them. These guys are fit. These guys are strong. These guys take care of themselves and gals. Because mm-hmm. it's been ingrained into us, like, take care of your body. Like, your body's your, 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 your vehicle. You have to have agency over it. You have to have, have discipline over it. And when your body is strong, your mind is strong. It truly no. is so true. Oh, absolutely. I, I do. That's, you know, I totally agree. If you're physically strong, it makes you more mentally tough. And that's basically, it's kind of like everything dovetails together. That's why it's, I think one thing bleeds into another area of your life, you know? Um, how many pull-ups can you do now after being in that training? You said you couldn't do any pull-ups. So how many are you up to now? Or now, um, I, I mean, you're not in there anymore, but... I do now. I, still- I have two pull-up bars in the back because I okay, couldn't good. do any. And I was just like, I will never not be able to do them. And running, I go running on, probably every two to three nights I'll go running. But like, it, it depends. If I do them after, um, it depends. If I do them after push-ups, my arms are tired. If I do them right away... My arms are right. stronger, so I can bang out 11 or 15, but it depends. I do reps, really. I'll do reps. You know, I just want to maintain. Like, I don't, I'll tell you this. This is another secret, and this is why I'm able to work out. I, I don't push myself in a way where I hate it. I, so there's times where I'll get up on the pull-up bar, and some days I'll bang out a whole bunch. And then there's some days where my arms are like, leave me alone. But I, I do it. So mm-hmm. every day your performance is going to be different. So I try not to be too rigid with my workouts because when you're too rigid and you create these these standards for yourself and you don't meet them, then that's another thing that sabotages your ability to keep going and mm-hmm. work out. Because you're thinking, it does. It derails you. It derails you. Even diets when you're like, oh, I'm going to tomorrow, I'm going to start this hardcore diet. And when, one, I don't believe in diets. But two, but once you do that, you know, like tomorrow I'm not going to have cookies. I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to have that. You're going to, you create such a rigid program for yourself, which you're inevitably, you're not going to meet. You're going to fail it. And then what happens yeah. is you're never able, you're never able to do it because you, you're, you're always constantly feeling like you're failing. And so Absolutely. I just feel like with the workouts, like I don't go out to the park and I, this is me though. I'm not like today I'm going to run five laps, which is like three miles. Today I'm just going to run. And there's days where I'm like, I'll just do a lap and I'll end up doing six laps. So I let my body guide me too. That's a really good point. I agree with you hundred percent, right? If you push yourself to the max constantly, it will, it will actually end up being a, a rabbit hole. It, it'll, it'll actually, it'll actually work against you. It'll be a detriment. You'll hate it too. You'll hate it. Yeah, I agree. That's what I, I, I agree. Like it's, there's a, it's a fine line, right? It's a fine line. Where do people find you? Like if they want to know more about you, uh, besides, of course, getting your book, which is I, I, I couldn't. How many times have I even like said how much I love it? I mean, it's 
It's so good. Um, if what, How else do they get to? I'm going to put a link, by the way. I don't even have your physical book. I only have your the PDF. So I'm reading it on my oh. computer. I'll show it. Yes. So I've been like reading it on my on my computer. So I would show it, but I don't have the copy of it. But um, what, I can send else? it. I'll send it to you. We can send it. Please. To you. Yeah, yeah. That would be amazing because I'd like to show a picture of it too. I mean, absolutely. So like, um, no. How do how else do people find you? So you can find me on social media. Social media. I've had to embrace the world of social media, which was a huge obstacle for me. Um, you know, so I was just like, I, was, I never had any social media, but you will find me on social media and I'm learning to love it actually, because it's wonderful because you can connect with people directly and all the messages, you know, I'll say this. I didn't expect my book to have such an impact on people. And I've gotten so many messages from people going through different hardships. I'm, I'm so overwhelmed. Like I, it's really just moving. It's really just so moving to me. And so I, that's why I love social media because people are directly connecting with me and telling me how the book or my book helped them, impacted them, helped them overcome something and something that I didn't really even expect would happen after the fact. But I'm on social, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me on my website. It's at eviepomperis.com. And because I have such a uniquely Greek last name, yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of Pomperuses out there. So evypomperus.com or at evypomperus. You can find me on out there. You can find Spy Games on Hulu. And you can find my book, Becoming Bulletproof, online as well. Becoming Bulletproof. It's beyond. I mean, the book is beyond. I said beyond Bulletproof just now because it is a beyond. It's, the book is beyond. I'm telling everyone, Becoming Bulletproof, not only can you read it. Well, I'm actually going to read it again because I feel like I said a billion times. There's so much information. I bet you the next time I read it, I will be. I would. I'm going to get other things out of it. And when I do, I'd love you to come back on, and we can focus on all the other trillion things that you write about. We're going to do the because, together. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you come to LA, you got to let me know. Do you promise? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, good. You've been you've been so great. You are absolutely like just a great guest with such great information, super practical, actionable items, and. Again, I couldn't, be, uh, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you on Habits and Hustle. So thank you for coming on. Habits and Hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and Hustle, from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. 
Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.